Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you may be, and welcome to 2 Minutes 59, Lake County, Illinois' favorite, if not only, Clash-inspired podcast. My name is David Von Ebers, I'm your host, and this is episode 25 of the show. So I started doing this back in, or I should say, I started doing this back in in, uh, late January of 2023, and it's gone along pretty well with a couple of little breaks and layoffs, as typically happens, uh, you know, with the craziness of everyday life. But uh, I'm very happy to have made it to episode 25. It's pretty exciting. Um, I don't know if uh, too many folks have actually tuned in to listen, but, you know, we do it anyway. This is, a, I guess, what you would call a passion project. I hate terminology like that, but I don't know how else to describe it kind of thing you do almost more for yourself than for for other people but in any event if you're listening welcome thank you I appreciate it Um, I've always said at the end of each episode if you have any thoughts or comments please leave them in the comment in the comment section below the post and I I do mean that Um, I'm more than happy to engage especially with other Clash fans Um, if you if you listen to last week's show the primary focus really the I would say the only focus was on the really tragic passing of um, Sinead O'Connor. I would, uh, if you if you're a fan of Sinead's music or you are interested in you know the things that she stood for and and um, spoke out about, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. That's episode 34. You can find it um, on this page. And um, you know if you listen in and you have any thoughts on any of the topics I discussed on that show please feel free to share your thoughts in the comments there as well um, but I did mention at the beginning of last week's show that I had some clash related topics that I wanted to talk about and I didn't get to them last week because of the untimely uh, death of Sinead O'Connor uh, and I felt like that sort of took precedence but I do want to kind of get back into the clash and you know the main subject of, of this show and one of the things that I mentioned last week was that I wanted to do a little bit of a dive into the uh, the cost of living EP that the clash released in 1979 this is maybe a little bit less well known than some of their other you know major albums obviously like uh, combat rock and London calling and Sandinista uh, which were particularly popular albums of theirs. But I, I, um, I stumbled across the cost, of living, the cost of Living EP back when I was in college, and um, I had you know friends and roommates who were really into The Clash. I was just starting to get into their music uh, in the early 1980s, and <clears throat> I really thought a lot of this... There's only four songs on the EP. It's I Fought the Law, which, of course, is on the U.S. version of the debut album, so I Fought the Law, a song called Groovy Times, Gates of the West, and a remake of an earlier song called Capital Radio. They refer to this version as Capital Radio 2. But in any event, I, I stumbled across it, and, and I thought what, what really kind of struck me about the EP when I first listened to it is that it's really, um, musically, it's it's great stuff. Uh, the songs are um, really well uh, recorded, well performed. The musicianship is great. I talked a couple uh, weeks back about 
how Mick Jones is sort of an underrated uh, guitar player, not necessarily as well appreciated as he should be as a musician. And his playing really stands out on this EP. Uh, if you are familiar at all with the with their cover of I Fought the Law, um, that was a, a kind of a minor hit in the United States when the debut album came out. Uh, I don't know if it did as well in the UK. Interesting, a fun fact about the original version of, of, the, of that song done by the Bobby Fuller Four. The guy who wrote the song also wrote the theme song to the Mary Tyler Moore Show, if you're familiar with 1970s American sitcoms. So that's kind of fun. But anyway... Um, the guitar playing on I Fought the Law really kind of jumped out of the speakers the first time first time you heard that uh, that song on the radio. It was very kind of, you know, raw, but but um, it sounded great. It sounded fantastic. And I remember, you know, I was totally unfamiliar with the band. I'm pretty sure that I heard, I'm pretty sure I Fought the Law was the first Clash song I ever heard on the radio back when I was in high school. And... Um, even before um, Train in Vain, which was a bit of a hit for them, uh, the the uncredited song off of London Calling, that was maybe their first su substantial hit in the U.S. But I thought the law got some radio play, at least on sort of alternative stations. And uh, I remember thinking, who are these guys? That's It just sounded so great. And it didn't really fit. I mean, it was a very punk song, the way they recorded it, but it didn't fit my impression of punk at the time which was that I didn't really appreciate it as a, I didn't appreciate the, mus the musicianship of punk bands. Um, I thought they were kind of maybe a bit simplistic and whatnot, and I didn't really grasp what they were doing at the time. But that song just like, it like jumped out of the speakers and grabbed you and it was so well done. Um, but in any event, some interesting things uh, about the Cost of Living EP and uh, what inspired me to delve into this was I saw um, on, I want to say on, on Twitter, some um, person of, I would say, conservative leaning, quoting a, a Margaret Thatcher uh, quote about something to the effect of, you know, when you've upset people, you know you're doing something right or words to that effect. I, I, won't, I won't go into it. Um, <laughs> the Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan days were a pretty dark period of time in many, many respects, although... They were both very popular political figures. But when I saw the quote, the Thatcher quote by a you know, um, modern-day conservative, I kind of chuckled because we have this tendency still to this day to look back at people like Thatcher and Reagan as, as being heroes. But I was, you know, my first election in the United States was in 1980. I shouldn't say my first election in the United States because that would imply that I voted in other countries other countries, which I did not. My first election uh, happened to be the U.S. presidential election in 1980 and uh, was not a fan of Ronald Reagan, did not vote for Ronald Reagan. So I do not look back on Reagan or Thatcher as being heroes. But what I find uh, interesting about the Cost of Living EP was that they, um, The Clash timed the release of the album for... Um, the day of the general election in 1979 in the UK when Margaret Thatcher was elected. And um, in many ways, it's sort of a, a negative reflection on the cons conservative shift in the UK 
which of course was also going on in the U.S. So I think that was really interesting that uh, that it was a, um, a a commentary to some degree on her election. Uh, it could equally be a commentary on Reagan's election the following year. And uh, I saw there, there's a website called the Clash Wiki. It's like a Wikipedia for the Clash, and I'll I'll put a link in the in the notes. But they pointed out not only that the a record was released on election day in 1979 but also <laughs> this kind of cracks me up a little bit it's terrible but it's funny um uh, the original album artwork was supposed to feature a picture of margaret thatcher with a swastika superimposed over her face kind of kind of not subtle not too subtle um expression of their um feelings about thatcher's election but they ended up scrapping that because, uh, according to the Clash Wiki website, Mick Jones said, I don't want no politicians on the front of my records, which kind of cracks me up. Because in a way, that's sort of, you know, that's kind of like the perfect sort of Clash version, or I'm sorry, vision of, of politics. They were making, um, you know, profoundly political statements. They were, they were an overtly political band in many ways. But they didn't want the picture of a politician on the record cover because they're speaking as, you know, citizens, as private individuals, as people who are, you know, whose lives are often negatively affected by politicians. And so they didn't even want to put the a picture, even if the picture itself was critical of the politician, they didn't want a politician's picture on the record. I thought that was really an interesting comment by Mick. Um, but some of the, a couple of the songs, uh, I think, are particularly, um, you know, not only politically re- relevant, but, um, but timely. Uh, the one that really jumps out at me is the song Groovy Times, which, again, you know, like I said, when I first heard this record, it seemed really, you know, musically kind of sophisticated, great guitar playing, um, real great sound, great melody. Uh, and my first impression of the song was more of, hey, this is a really fun song. I like this song. This sounds great, you know. And I was really just getting into The Clash at the time. And I, you know, I've always been impressed by the wide array of different musical sounds and styles they play. But I was first struck, you know, by, by the musicianship, the fact that it was just a really good, solid rock song. And it sounded great. Then you d- kind of delve into the, to the lyrics and uh, under that that sheen oh and by, by the way just as an aside apparently uh the song was both groovy times and gates of the west another really cool song on the record uh both of those songs were um basically outtakes from the sessions that they did for the second album give them enough rope so they they kind of didn't make the cut for give them enough rope another album we'll have to dive into in the future but uh and in any event, they put it out. They put out these four songs as a separate EP, but the lyrics to Groovy Times are just this, you know, this this great kind of, I don't know, skeptical, cynical view that the Clash had and that Joe Strummer had about things that were happening in society, and and uh, you know, the, the the ultimate theme of the song really is how, you know, pop music and pop culture kind of. Um, put a very positive sheen over things uh, going on in society that are actually very negative. So it begins, the opening verses, 
The high street shops are boarded up and the terrace that is fenced in. See-through shields are walled across the way that you came in. You know, it's building up this impression of kind of like a police state with with uh, boarded up uh, shops and, and, and uh, well, maybe in that sense, not so much a police state, but like showing in the negative aspects of the state of the economy at that time, right? Because after all, the record is called the cost of living. And I think a lot of the focus is on how difficult it was for ordinary people to get by. Um, but then it goes on, to, again, this kind of cynical skepticism, but there's no need to get excited as the lorries bring the bacon in because the housewives are all singing, groovy times are here again. Uh, you know, again, this way of sort of like, kind of like the old political concept of bread and circuses, you know, um, covering up the problems of society with consumerism and, and you know, um, shiny new things, while in reality, the high street shops are boarded up, and etc. Um, then it goes on, and I find this really fascinating because, you know, I, I always talk about how political and social issues that the Clash talked about in the 70s and 80s resonate 40 plus years later, 40, 45 years later. The next verse says, they discovered one black Saturday that mobs don't march, they run. So you can excuse the nervous trigger man just this once for jumping the gun. And then the next verse says they were picking up the dead out of the broken glass. Yes, it's number one, the radio station said, groovy times have come to pass. So again, that idea of you know pop culture kind of putting this veneer of, of, of positivity over ugly things that are happening in the world. But the ugly thing in this context, <clears throat> to me, sounds very much like, you know, a, like police violence directed at protesters. They discovered one Black Saturday that mobs don't march, they run. So you can excuse the nervous trigger man just this once for jumping the gun, you know, it, it, and then the next lyric goes into picking up the dead out of the broken glass. So it's, it creates this impression for me of, you know, people becoming agitated with this state of society, people protesting, and then the very heavy-handed police response. And the result is people ended up, you know, people end up uh, getting, getting killed, really. Meanwhile, the radio is playing some number one hit song and people are, are cheering it on. So anyway, I think that kind of, um, you know, that kind of uh, <laughs> sentiment really kind of, in, in my mind, you know, what you think of what we've gone through in the U.S. over the past few years with Black Lives Matter protests and, and um, you know, some of the other protests about uh, uh, police violence and, and things that are obviously stressing people out. And I, I just see a parallel between the lyrics of that song and, and some of the things that are happening today. And it also kind of reminds me of how um, our, uh, our views of like protest actions and the First Amendment sometimes are, are a little messed up in this country in that we when when people protest on the street almost any sort of police reaction against the protest seems you know in the minds of most people to be justified like well those people shouldn't have been out in the street they shouldn't have been making trouble the cops are just you know protecting protecting the public and protecting you know public order and all that sort of thing 
But when a politician speaks out and, and says ridiculous things and the public criticizes the politician, all of a the sudden there are these, <clears throat> these sort of First Amendment issues come up. And it's like we value the First Amendment rights of politicians over the First Amendment rights of the people. And again, it kind of reminds me of that whole thing about we don't want the politician's picture on our record because our record is our voice, the, the public's voice pushing back against the politician and not we don't want we don't want to have the politician represented themselves in any way. So anyway, I thought that was an interesting um, sort of uh, I, I find that there's an interesting kind of connection. Um, the other song I really like about on this record is uh, the song Gates of the West, uh, which is, if I, if I remember correctly, it's the third song on the record. And this one, by the way, speaking of Mick and Mick's musicianship, the guitar playing is great, but Mick sings this song uh, as well. And, you know, as much as I like the songs that Joe sings, he sang most of their most of their songs. Uh, Mick had a, had a really great voice and he had a great voice for the time. He had this perfect sort of uh, new agey, new agey, I didn't mean new agey, new wave slash punk um, uh, voice. And it was, it was uh, the songs that he sings a lot of times really jump out at me that they're particularly great, like uh, Stay Free is a great example. Of course, he's saying Train in Vain uh, and he sings Gates of the West. So, so I, I like it for that. I love Joe. You know, he's my favorite artist of all time. I like his singing, even though it's not, um, you know, sort of great singing in a, in a classical sense. But I like his singing. But Mick really had a wonderful voice and a, and a great voice for the times. I mean, he really had this sort of late 70s, 80s feel to his singing. It's hard to explain, but if you were there, I think you'd know what I mean. But anyway, so uh, Gates of the West is a great song. Um, it's one of those songs, <laughs> it's one of those songs where it's kind of like, uh, you know, um, uh, talking about the band's journey. Uh, a lot of song, a lot of bands write those kind of songs, talking about where they came from and where they got and everything like that. Uh, it reminds me of, uh, just as a, an aside, in a humorous way, uh, some of the stuff that Tenacious D did with Jack Black and, and Kyle Gass, they're, they're, they're sort of overblown uh mythological story of their own band's evolution. This is a much funner song and much less um, um, pompous. <laughs> Although the Tenacious D song is intentionally pompous, of course. But this song is really fun. But here's something that's funny. So I loved the song the first time I heard it. It really jumped out at me. And one of my favorite verses of the song is how they're talking about going to New York. You know, I, I I'm a big fan of New York City. I love the sort of the cultural impact that New York has had on not just America, but the world. And one of the things that I love about The Clash is their sort of love affair with New York. And this is maybe one of the earliest examples. But in um, the second verse, uh, they sing, Mick sings, I should be jumping, shouting that I made it all this way from Camden Town Station in the UK, obviously, from Camden Town Station to 44th and 8th, obviously Manhattan, Times Square area. But here, so here's the thing. So I list, I've listened to the song a thousand times. Every time I hear the song, I hear him say 44th and 8th. 
but I looked at the lyrics um, the other day when I was thinking about talking about this song, and everywhere I saw the lyrics, or almost everywhere I saw the lyrics, the line read 40th and 8th, not 44th and 8th. So I actually downloaded the record on my iPhone again because I hadn't listened to it in a while. And I sat there with my ear, AirPods on, listening very carefully. And I swear to God, he says 44th and 8th, not 40th and 8th. Now, I will say, I mentioned the Clash Wiki uh, site a moment ago. On their version of the lyrics, they say 44th and 8th. But everywhere else I found the lyrics, it said 40th and 8th. And I thought, oh my God, have I been... Have I been wrong all these years on the lyrics? In fact, this is how this is what a dumb Clash fan I am, or how how how, how fanatical I am. I, one of the first times I was in New York for work a few years ago, uh, the office that I went to happened to be in Times Square, and so I literally on on a lunch break walked over to the corner of Forty Fourth and Eighth and took a a, a a photograph of the street signs. It's actually kind of a cool photo. Then I thought, oh my God, did I did I literally take a picture of the wrong street sign? You know, here I am trying to, you know, show my clash fandom and I go to the wrong place. But I'm convinced. I listened to it again and again and again. I'm convinced he says 44th and 8th, not 40th and 8th. And it actually makes more sense to me thinking about Times Square, you know, is really where um, basically where Broadway and Seventh Avenue run together. That's where that uh, sort of v-shaped intersection is where they drop the ball on new year's eve and so forth and that's you know right around 43rd street and so to me 44th and 8th makes more sense because it's closer to kind of the heart of times square 40th and 8th i guess is still times square but it's not like really right in the midst of it so i don't know i think it's 44th and 8th i'm gonna stick with that the Clash Wiki says it's 44th and 8th, so there you go. But anyway, what I like about this song, um, aside from the fact that musically it's a great song, what I like about it is that it's it shows kind of, to me it's like kind of like the beginning of their love uh, love affair with New York City, and uh, they you know despite having. Um, Despite having written, for example, I'm So Bored with the USA, a song I talked about uh, a few weeks ago where they're, they're talking about feeling almost oppressed by kind of the ubiquitous nature of American pop culture and how it's sort of forced down everyone's throats all around the world and how exhausting it must have been for them. Despite having that sort of impression of American pop culture, there's a... a a lyric in the song, or a verse in the song that goes, I say I know somewhere back and forth in time, out in the dust bowls, deep in the roulette mine, or in a gutter, gutter ghetto cellar only yesterday, there's a move into the future, the USA. I interpret that verse, as poorly as I just read it, I interpret that verse to be talking about how excited, uh, how exciting sort of like the culture of, at least the underground culture in America was with punk and with hip hop and with, you know, everything that was happening in New York. Um, it, it was pretty, uh, you know, it was a pretty exciting time, despite the fact that New York City was going through some tough times back in those days. Um, I, I, I think it shows that they actually appreciated like American culture, at least, at least 
the underground culture and the, 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 the rapid pace of change of culture in a place like New York. So I think that that was kind of a cool tip of the hat to the U.S., despite the fact that they're very cynical about U.S. politics and about the kind of the superficial aspects of American culture. I thought that was kind of a nice thing. And then it goes from, you know, the, the band's history kind of goes from there to they end up recording Sandinista and Combat Rock in New York and really getting into the hip-hop scene and, and all that sort of thing. And this song, to me, was just like a little glimpse of where they were going in terms of their their connections to New York. It talks about, you know, landing in Times Square that first uh, time coming to America, and then it talks of the move into the future. Anyway, I thought it was a cool little uh, tip of the hat to the United States, even though, obviously, they remain very cynical about some of our, our, our worst... Um, <laughs> political aspects. And then finally, the, the last song, and I'll, I'll just mention this briefly, the last song on the EP is Kappa Radio 2, which is sort of a, a remake of the song Kappa Radio that they'd released as a, a single. I, they actually gave it away for free. It was an insert in, a, I want to say, the New Musical Express or some other British um, music uh, a publication. But the... Um, the Kappa Radio 2 version is interesting. It is a little, um, I would say, it's a little rougher around the edges than the original version, if that makes sense. I really like the original version. Um, if I'm, I'm scrolling through my phone here to see if I can find it. I think that they do a live version that's much more like the original on the uh, From Here to Eternity album. Uh, bo, 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 scrolling down, scrolling down. Yeah, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's not on there. But in any event, oh yeah, they do. Capital Radio Live. It's the seventh track on the From Here to Eternity Live album that came out in the early 1990s. Um, but but the the original version reminded me. The first time I heard it, it reminded me of all. You know, there's this long tradition of of um, rock artists and, and bands doing songs about the radio, you know, like, like uh, obviously Elvis Costello did radio, radio, kind of a critical version of, of um, <laughs> a critical version of, of pop radio. The Ramones did uh, Do You Remember Rock and Roll Radio. Cheap Trick had a great song called uh, On the Radio, if I'm not mistaken. And then, of course, Capital Radio. So it's part of that tradition of, of rock bands writing songs either praising or in some cases uh, criticizing radio and I I would argue that um, <laughs> that uh, capital radio falls into the latter category but um, it's a great song it's a fun song and and the capital radio 2 version is fine it, it's a perfectly good song but it, I I really like the original the original is really this hard driving you know rock song about about the radio but but it's comparing um, kind of like pirate radio, independent radio to corporate radio, and needless to say, not not um, showing a particularly favorable view of corporate radio. But it's part of that long, long tradition. So the the other thing that I wanted to mention, well, two other things briefly. The first one more important than the second in a way is that there is a new Joe Strummer release coming out 
Uh, it's coming out soon, and you can pre-order it. And um, it is called Joe Strummer and the Mescaleros. Uh, wait a minute, wait a minute. What's the full title? <laughs> I got to get it right. Joe Strummer and the Mescaleros live at Acton Town Hall. This was a, uh, a live recording from 2002. <coughs> Pardon me. It's uh, it was a benefit concert that that. Joe and the Mescaleros did for striking firefighters in the UK. Um, part of his, you know, tradition of political activism and pro-union activism and pro-worker activism. So that's pretty cool. Um, but one of the really interesting things about it, and I just ordered it on vinyl and I can't wait for it to come. And I will do a more, uh, a deeper dive into it when, when, I, when I get it. But one of the great things about it is um, first of all, the Mescaleros were a great band, so the musicianship is probably phenomenal. A lot of great uh, songs that um, Joe did on his own, but it also includes some class songs, Rudy Can't Fail, White Men in the Hammersmith Palais, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Police on My Back, I Fought the Law, but here's the best part. The last three tracks, Bank Robber, White Riot, and London's Burning, he does with Mick Jones. Mick Jones showed up at the concert and he did these last three songs, on, last three songs on the record anyway, uh, are with him. So this goes back to what I was talking about again a couple weeks ago about the fact that, you know, there was this possibility of, of a reunion and we will never know what happened. This was recorded in 2002. Joe died in December of that year. So we'll never know what happened what would have happened but it, it's a very sentimental thing and um uh, anyway I'm, I'm looking forward to it you can uh find um, a link to pre-order the record on joestrummer.com so uh, i'm very much looking forward to that and then finally the the last thing that i i just wanted to mention and now it's sort of like water under the bridge maybe but a few weeks ago there was a big controversy here in the states surrounding this um Jason Aldean song, country song called uh, Try That in a Small Town. And I just wanted to comment on it in a couple of ways. Number one, uh, unlike maybe a lot of punk music fans, I happen to really like country music. I've listened to country music for decades. Um, a lot of my favorite rock bands like, uh, like The Clash, like Joe Strummer, uh, have sort of dabbled in country music from time to time. The Rolling Stones have famously done songs like Dead Flowers, um, you know, that had a very strong country vibe. The Beatles even did here and there. <clears throat> uh, for what it's worth, there's a, uh, there's a great um, Dwight Yoakam cover of, uh, of uh, Train in Vain. So they're not, uh, they're not all that far removed from country. And, and and real good country music has this long sort of, you know, kind of working class tradition that, that does actually tie in well with punk rock in some ways. There's also, obviously, there have been country-influenced um, punk uh, rockers like Dave Alvin, like, um, you know, even X in some ways. Certainly uh, one of my favorite uh, California punk bands is um, Social Distortion. They had a very heavy country influence. So I like country music and I don't view country music as necessarily narrow-minded and 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 short-sighted. I mean, you know, Garth Brooks, one of the uh, the, the the single best-selling in solo artist in American history, 
had a song called We Shall Be Free back in the 1990s where he basically was endorsing same-sex marriage and gay rights. But for that, of course, got banned from country radio. But we'll put that aside for a moment. But so there isn't necessarily any one sort of political point of view in country. But this song, the Try That in a Small Town song, it's just, you know, it's just one of these ridiculously offensive songs. There's just no excuse for it, in my view. And a lot of um, a lot of black folks have pointed out that the lyrics sound very much like or very reminiscent of, you know, the, the sundown towns that used to exist all over the country, where basically, if you were a black person, you better not be found within the borders of that town after sundown or you could face you know violence um, even death lynching and so forth and i'm not in a position to comment on that i'm not black i can't um, pretend to understand the black experience on a very on a personal level but i certainly am not going to discredit those concerns either for that same reason i can't say that's wrong because I can't put myself in the position of a black person and how they would receive those kind of lyrics knowing that historical background. But even if he's... Oh, and, and, oh, and by the way, he filmed the video for the, for the song in front of a courthouse in Tennessee where there was a very famous lynching incident. So somebody decided to put that image in the video for Try That in a Small Town, which only reinforces the apparent connection with, you know, sundown towns and that sort of mentality. But again, even if you put that aside, just the lyrical content itself uh, of basically saying, you know, if you do certain things that we approve of in the small town, you're going to get your ass kicked. I mean, it's just so ridiculously, you know, if you had, if you said to someone, a conservative person on Twitter, you said, yeah, you know, come here and say that in my town, come to my town, come to Chicago, come to New York, come to Los Angeles and say that, you know, they would scream bloody murder and accuse you of threatening them and they'd report you to Twitter or whatever the heck, you know, they would lose their minds. But because it's from this sort of white small town perspective, and obviously not all small towns are all white and not all small town people are white, but it, the song is clearly from this white small town perspective. Somehow, you know, we're expected to say, oh, that's okay. That's okay. You know, uh, it's, it's, you know, small town values. They predominate over everything else. But um, I just, it's just in these like incredibly divisive times to have this white singer uh, particularly a country artist singing a song like that it just there's no excuse for it man you got to grow the hell up you got to stop looking at it that way you know 80% of americans live in bigger cities or suburbs or what they call exurbs you know the the further out places from big cities kind of like where we live but 80 80% of americans live in things other than small towns right you, and yet we are supposed to bow down to people who live in small towns because somehow or another they're supposed to be morally superior to the 80% of us who don't. I'm sorry, I don't bow down to anybody. And I don't expect the small town person to kiss my rear end either, right? But, but in these divisive times to write an inflammatory, you know, literally threatening kind of song like that, is pretty despicable in my view. So I got that off my chest. 
we'll not be talking about Jason Aldean next time. Um, if you listened in, thank you very much. Again, always uh, feel free to leave a comment. Let me know what you're thinking. And uh, hope you enjoyed today's show. And uh, talk to you next week. <laughs>